I'm going to ask you to stay standing as Jeff Borden did last week. I know he let you sit down and then he got you back up again because I think it's proper for us to do so as we read God's word. The sermon series for the summer will be focused on the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament. Today's uh, passage, Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15, found on page 38 in your pew Bibles, is the climax of a familiar story, uh, the story of Joseph. So let's hear God's word together. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land for two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We ask that as we hear it this morning, we would be changed by it that we might leave here more like your son Jesus, who we see here, than when we came. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Over three decades ago, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner published a book whose philosophy is still very popular with many people today. That book, entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People, was on the New York Times bestseller list for 52 weeks, selling over half a million hardcover copies before coming out in a paperback edition, which is still in print. Kushner's basic premise, God is all loving, but not all powerful. He's good, but not sovereign. So when bad things happen to good people, it's because events are out of God's control. And part of his prescription for dealing with bad things is to learn to love God and forgive him in spite of his limitations. 
Now, I don't know about you, but somehow viewing events and people as out of God's control doesn't make me feel better. In fact, why should you or I even consider worshiping such a being as God? And even more importantly, a good but powerless God is simply not the God we meet in the pages of the Old or New Testament scriptures. The story of Joseph that comes to a climax here in Genesis 45 is a clear example of belief in a good and sovereign God who in his providence directs all the affairs of this world in order to accomplish his gracious goal of redemption. Joseph certainly experienced injustice at the hands of others, even his own family. Yet through it all, he is sustained by his belief in God's gracious providence in the midst of suffering. We can learn something about the nature of this providence from our text this morning. We see God's providence revealed. We see God's providence explained. And we see God's providence fulfilled. In verses 1 through 3, we see God's providence revealed. For years, Joseph's brothers carried around a secret of what they had done to their younger brother. They were planning to kill him until one of his brothers, Reuben, intervened. Yet as far as they knew, he had died as a slave in some foreign land, which is very common in those days. But you and I know the rest of the story. In time, God's hand brought a famine to the land, and the family's existence was threatened. And in their search for deliverance, they find themselves in Egypt, unknowingly in the hands of the brother they sold into slavery years before. Now, Joseph does not reveal himself immediately to them, but tests his brothers, particularly uh, his brother Judah, who had been so previously callous when they sold him into slavery. And in the end, Judah's willingness to sacrifice himself reveals his heart change, and the last offenses of the self-controlled Joseph break. In a flood of pent-up emotions and tears, he reveals his true identity. His brothers are suddenly confronted with the evil deed committed so long ago, and they are paralyzed with fear. If this is really Joseph, and he has risen to this position of power, had the day of reckoning come, you could sense it. They just are stopped dead in their tracks. God's providence was revealed, but Joseph's brothers were not yet certain. They weren't certain whether it was really providence or judgment. And they would not be certain until Joseph places the events of the past in a divine context. He proceeds to do this in verses 5 through 8, where we see God's providence explained. Jesus reassures his brothers by momentarily deflecting their thoughts from their sin to God's grace revealed in his providence. He tells them not to be grieved or angry with themselves. For while they sold him into slavery, God sent him before them to preserve life. He says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times in four short verses, 
Joseph repeats that idea. Now certainly the brothers were accountable for their sins. He is not making light of what had happened to him. And not only them, but all the people who had mistreated him when he had, when he had arrived in the land of Egypt. Remember, he had been falsely accused, even thrown into prison. And yet through it all, he, doesn't, he is not counting these things to his brothers. They certainly were accountable. But there was no basis for retaliation and bitterness because God was the one who sent Joseph ahead of his family to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Now, given Joseph's experiences, he could easily have become a cynic, an existentialist, or even a nihilist. He could have lived with bitterness. He could have lived with anger, exacting his vengeance for the wrongs that had been done against him. I mean, after all, he is the second in command of all of Egypt. He could have snapped his fingers and ordered them taken away, never to be seen again. Instead, he chooses a God-centered perspective. He shows an ability to relate everything that happened to him, both good and bad, to God's providence in his life. It was this attitude, this deep-seated belief in the goodness, mercy, wisdom, and power of God that was the source of his ability to supernaturally forgive and to overcome the circumstances of his life. Now what makes that perspective so powerful is it comes from someone who experienced a lot of suffering and evil. Not from someone who just lived a good life and was simply acknowledging that all good gifts from, come from God. Sometimes it's easy for us when things are going well to acknowledge the goodness and providence of God in our lives. In fact, most of the time we think about providence, we think about it in good terms. The special things, the special blessings and gifts that God gives us. But the scriptures don't, don't tell us that that's the only time we think about providence. And it's important to remember that Joseph is not saying that God is also the source of evil. We don't have some early form of Star Wars theology here that teaches that both good and evil comes from the same force. Evil comes from the spirit of malicious disobedience unleashed by Satan's rebellion against God and at work in the world, in the hearts of men and women. But God, God is still in charge. His purposes are accomplished even though the deeds and plans of evil men are worked. That's what Peter meant in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he wrote, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice what Peter says here. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, not by the definite plans and foreknowledge of men. It surely was men who crucified and killed him at, at their hands. But it was God who was behind it all to accomplish his work. And only the believer can have the confidence that God will bring about his will in spite of what evil human instruments might intend. Isn't that what we are reminded of in Romans chapter 8? One of my favorite passages. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that all things are good. That'll happen to us. 
but it says that all things work together for good to those who are called according to God's purpose. So we've considered God's providence revealed, and we've considered how it has been explained in this text. But now third and finally, let's consider God's providence fulfilled in verses 9 through 15. There are four consequences of God's providence in this story. And we see a lot of them just off the surface, but let me challenge you that there are four here. First, God saved Joseph. That's obvious. God saved Joseph from physical death on numerous occasions in this story. But even more importantly, it was the Lord who saved him from spiritual death. The sins of others can have a powerful influence over us. And if left unchecked, can define us. I see it all the time in my counseling with soldiers and families. Bitterness or hatred directed at people that we believe have wronged or mistreated us can overcome and destroy us. The classic example in literature is Hamlet, who's consumed by the murder of his father. Its effects on him reshape his character and lead to his ultimate ruin. God protected Joseph from such bitterness and hatred. From a human perspective, it may have been his right to feel that way. But Joseph didn't see it from a human perspective. He saw it from God's perspective. He was no longer the arrogant, insensitive young dreamer who was his father's favorite. That Joseph had changed through all the suffering and injustice he had experienced. He was humbled and tempered in the school of suffering. And through his experiences had become a godly man. Alistair Begg, a popular pastor, puts it well. He says, in the rough and tumble of a less than perfect family life, God was preparing Joseph for the role he had planned for him. And a matter of, as a matter of fact, the only explanation for the life of Joseph and the role he played is found in the electing grace of God. There is no human reason whatsoever that Joseph should have, should have emerged from the emotional and spiritual carnage of his family life to be the incredible man of God he was. The only way we can explain it is to say God purposed for it to be so. But God not only blessed Joseph spiritually, he also caused him to prosper and to become all the Lord of all of Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh. And through his position, God used Joseph to save the lives of his family. As we have seen, Joseph clearly understood that God sent him ahead of his family to preserve their lives through a great deliverance. His brothers did not know when they sold him into slavery that years later, a great famine would strike the land and that they would be in great need. They didn't know any of those things. Joseph didn't either. But his position in Egypt allowed his family to escape the certain death that awaited them in a famine-stricken Israel. But God's providence in the life of Joseph's family had another consequence. Through it, God saved the lives of others. In verse 7, Joseph says that it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now, the term to save lives is a general term here, not specifically focused on his brothers and family. The point is 
that non-believers, men, women, and children outside of the covenant, also benefited from Joseph's wisdom and blessing. In fact, everyone who lived in Egypt and all of those who came from other lands to purchase the stored up grain survived because they shared in God's mercy to Joseph and his family. They experienced a special providence because of God's care for his own people. The world still experiences that common grace and goodness today. Even though they often dismiss Christian faith as irrelevant, they nevertheless, because of the presence of God and his divine favor and his providence and good mercies to his people, still experience his goodness. I think you can certainly say that in the history of this country. Finally, the last consequence of God's providence is that through it, God saved the world. And if we want to treat the scriptures as God intends us, then we need to recognize this as the key to this story. And we look at the story of Joseph as being about God's care under unjust suffering and forgiveness. And it is about those things. But ultimately, ultimately, it is about how God's goal of redeeming a people to glorify and serve him drives world history. I'm a history major. You know, we study all the events and all the cause and effects and never in a textbook are you going to see that it's all driven by God's redemptive purposes, but it is. God promised a seed to crush a serpent's head. He preserved that promise through Noah. He promised Abraham that he would bless the nations through his seed. And in order to preserve the covenant family that would bear that seed, God allowed Joseph's brother to sell him into slavery. Through Joseph's suffering, God saves Abraham's seed, and the great promise of divine redemption through the promised Messiah continues. See, we miss that sometimes in those stories in Genesis, don't we? We don't see that what's going on here is that divine thread of promise that's made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 is being preserved and kept until that Jesus Christ, the Messiah that we sang about, who redeems and rescues us, is allowed to come and to die on a cross for you and me. Bad things happen to those who, by the world's standards, are good people. We could probably preach another sermon about that whole concept of whether people are good or not good. But for the sake of the sermon today, we'll just say that bad things happen to people who, are by the world's standard, are good. And such events often prompt the skeptic to ask, how could God allow such an evil thing to happen? But how does the skeptic know that these events are evil? For those of you who were in the Sunday school class a couple weeks ago, we talked about evil and suffering. How does he know? Evolution teaches that the survival of the fittest in a world without moral absolutes, does it not? The most powerful and adaptive organisms violently overpowers the weaker. So how then can a skeptic judge humans as evil for doing what the rest of nature does? The problem of evil and suffering is a bigger problem for the person who denies God's existence than it is for a believer. But Christians do not make light of the age-old problem of suffering. We know it is real. We have been through it ourselves. We've seen others who've been through it. We know it is real. We know that evil and suffering are a tragic consequence of man's separation from God. But we also know, we also know that a good and sovereign God providentially directs the affairs of this world to accomplish his gracious goals of redemption and restoration. We see this truth 
in Joseph's story. One author expressed it this way. All the episodes in this Joseph story contribute to demonstrating how God's purposes are ultimately fulfilled through and in spite of human deeds, whether or not those deeds are morally right. God's providence directs all the affairs of this world in order to accomplish his gracious redemption. We can't always discern the reasons that God allows evil, but the cross, the cross gives us the assurance that he is not indifferent to our suffering. Even on the other side of the cross, Joseph understood that truth. That is why he could say of the evil that had been, been done against him, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So what are the implications of this story for those of us sitting here this morning? If you're an unbeliever, the story is a reminder that God providentially directs the affairs of your life, even though you may not recognize him as your Savior and Lord. However, apart from him, you cannot have the firm assurance of the believer that all things will work together for your ultimate good. But the good news of the story is that because of God's providence in Joseph's life, the seed of Abraham was preserved so that the promised Messiah would come and unjustly suffer at the hands of men that you might be redeemed through faith. Don't wait another hour before you seek that redemption. If you're a believer, God wants to encourage you that his providential hand is at work even when you cannot see it. Because of sin, the world is inherently full of evil and suffering. But God directs all circumstances for good and for his glory on a personal and a universal level. And God's work of providence did not stop with the end of the New Testament, nor at the end of the apostolic era of the church. You are part of the God's continuing covenant community like a link in a chain fence. By faith, you stretch back to Abraham, to whom the promise of God was given. The same promise-keeping God, the same covenant-keeping God, is providentially at work in and through you to accomplish his goal of bringing redemption to a lost world. He started with you. Nothing happens in your life as a matter of chance. Nothing. A good, loving, and merciful God is at work in and through you. The question I'll leave you with this morning is, how will the knowledge of that gracious providence, even in the midst of suffering, shape how you think and act this week? Let us pray.